Hey guys, thanks for tuning in for the second episode of A Great Conversation with our guest Dan Merle. He gives a great interview here and I'm so excited for you guys to hear it. Dan is obviously a class act as you have known him from everywhere and if you don't know all about Dan, you're about to get to know him. Be sure to leave a comment below, hit that subscribe button if you haven't already, and hit the notification bell if you guys want to be alerted when we post new videos and when I go live for live streams. If you're watching this and you want to listen to it on audio, you can get us on iTunes, Spotify, pretty much anywhere you can find a podcast. Otherwise, guys, the second show on the channel, Song from the Scene, is going to be launching this week. I'm really excited to look out for it. It's something that is very near and dear to my heart, and I hope you guys enjoy. And last but not least, guys, enjoy the show. What's going on, guys? Welcome back to another episode of A Great Conversation here on the Nerds and Seats Network. I have an incredible guest today, somebody I am so honored to be bringing on, somebody who's doing really, really exciting stuff right now, and somebody who I've actually gotten to know recently and, and call my friend, which is pretty cool. Um, give it up for the one, the only, the greatest of all time, Mr. Dan Merle. Yeah, what's up, man? How you doing, dude? Welcome I'm to uh, welcome to Nerds and Suits. Thank you. I like it. I very rarely wear suits. So I'm, I'm like nerds in flannel. <laughs> Yeah, so trust me, man. I know I've impersonated you before. I had to go. I had to go get a <laughs> shirt. <laughs> I like still have. I still have the shirt, the and the jeans and the hat, and the glasses. I have the whole bit of it. I think it, it, you know. It's a great ensemble. It's very comfortable. I mean, it's, and it's really more like nerds and plaid. Most a lot of people say flannel. I have actually have very few flannel shirts. It's most it's plaid. It's nerds and plaid for me. Flannel's pretty warm for Los Angeles. I'm not very hot natured, so I, uh, flannel doesn't do it for me. Yeah. So we're recording this uh, on a Thursday. You're four days in to the launch of Dan Merle movies. Is that, is, is officially, is it called Dan Merle movies? Is that the name of the channel? Uh, it's, I mean, it's, it's technically Dan Merle. Uh, I, the, the URL, the YouTube URL is Dan Merle movies. Cause someone else had Dan Merle. So I figured movies was a pretty logical thing to put on there, but uh, yeah, Dan Merle, Dan Merle movies. I'll answer to either one. Okay. Very good. Very good. And are you, how's the, how's the, I mean, we're all in quarantine, so it's like you're, we do working from home anyway, but how's the yeah. hustle of uh, working from home? I mean, yeah, it's weird because, you know, when I was working still with, with screen junkies, it was starting to feel a little kind of claustrophobic because we're used to working together and everything's got to be over Zoom. But this is, I'd be doing the same thing either way. Um, so it's actually kind of energized it in the sense that, like, I don't think about the routine and I don't think about the fact that I can't leave or that things are different because, uh, you know, every day now it's just really for the last couple weeks really leading up to the launch but especially since we launched is like every minute of every day is taken now it's like uh you know working on the patreon working on the discord saying hi to people there making stuff for the youtube channel you know yesterday was getting an ama ready today was uh shooting a review and then it's gonna be editing a review and i'm still doing a couple things for honest trailers and screen junkies so it's actually kind of gotten my mind off of everything because there's so much new stuff to do every day that it's literally from the time i would get up to the time my head hits the pillow i've got just a list to stuff to do yeah I, I can relate to it because action industries the, the the brand i've been running with andrew guy for years now uh takes up so much of our time and we've really learned that everything if you want to do it right takes a thumbnail and it takes the scheduling and it takes the editing and all and so now that i'm doing this nerds and suits it's like this is my little sliver i'm just doing this because <laughs> i've always wanted to do these interviews and so yeah. um i you know but it's still the same thing i have to come up with clever thumbnails and, and other things of that nature so um, but anyway, was, was literally, like I told you right before we came here, like I stopped do, I, 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 I cut on my Picard review and I immediately was just like, I gotta do this thing. Um, so yeah, <laughs> it's pretty crazy. Yeah. So I've had the good, the, the good fortune of getting to know you a little bit more these last few months. Um, you know, we, we both compete in the movie trivia Schmodown and we had this match in Atlanta that was kind of a one for the ages. And, uh, and, and so since then it's been a lot of fun, you know, kind of, uh, 
the the wall, so to speak, has been broken down. I can I can text Dan Merle now. I actually like know you. Um, and more than that, uh, when you came on the Action Guys recently, we started talking movies, and I started to see you've got a little bit of the similar taste. You've got you love The Rock. You've got some of those movies that you really really love. Um, and one of the things I've talked to you so much about that like really just that like the thing that I've wanted to talk to you the most about really is you made this incredible 10 years of, uh, of movies in the 2010s video for screen junkies, uh, the super yeah. And I watched it. I've probably watched it like 15 or 20 times. I've cried pretty much every time I've watched it. I've discovered movies and scenes in movies that I had never seen before uh, from little clips, Al Pacino dancing and Jack and Jill being one of them. <laughs> yes. Duncacino. Duncacino. It's incredible. It's amazing. And like, I feel like that, I feel like that movie is elevated uh, above all of the other crap in the latter half of his career for that one scene. That scene is like, uh, it's, uh, I'll put it up there with like Salvador Dali and like of the great <laughs> surreal art uh, of our time. The Duncacino scene from Jack and Jill is, is, is right up near the top for me. It's not Al anymore. It's Al. Dunk. Dunk. Duncacino, don't mind if I do. And just, the, oh my God, it's it's insane. And his dancing in the one part that you clipped is pretty impressive. It's actually really well choreographed. I mean, he these guys, these old school guys, you know, they had to know how to do everything. So yeah. it's pretty crazy. So talking about the supercut, I know you've done an incredible number of videos for Screen Junkies over the years. And that has kind of just been your whole story is, you know, doing video content at this point. So when you were working on that one, when you were working on that, did you already know there was a chance that in the near future you would no longer be there or that was, you didn't know yet? I did um, actually. And in, in many ways, I kind of, one of the, cause I originally was just gonna do one for the year. I was gonna do one for 2019 cause, cause we had done a, a couple of them before. Um, but, uh, this year JTE used to do them for us, uh, but he, you know, he moved. And so there wasn't really one on the schedule. So I was like, Oh, I, I like to edit. I'll take that on. Um, but then I realized like, Oh wait, we're at the end of a decade. And it, it was, it was not certain, but it was, it was trending in that direction that I, I it looked like I was going to be leaving. So in a lot of ways I did kind of regard that as a sort of goodbye to you know that decade not just for movies but kind of to that's a lot of the stuff that that happened while i was working at screen junkies we covered a lot of those movies and we talked about a lot of those movies so yeah that, that had a little extra poignance for me because i did have in the back of my mind that it was very likely that it would mark close to the end of my tenure there so it's a really emotional video. Um, you pick some great stuff in there. I mean, I especially like the song that you start with, Montage from Swiss Army Man, which yeah. uh, is a film I've never seen, but I looked the song up because I liked it so much. And you get to the end and you get to the final one and it's these real tearjerker moments. Did mm -hmm. you find yourself when you watched it when it was done because of what it meant to you getting a little emotional yourself? You, you toiled over for too long. <laughs> well, yeah, that's the thing is it, 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 it's 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 so difficult because I mean that was very much a, a passion project. So that was done, you know, in bits and pieces over a couple months, and then really uh, seriously over like Christmas break was when I put in a lot of work into it. Um, so I think probably looking back. I, I might be a little more moved by it because there's always little things that I don't like, or like there's like a cursor in one shot. Cause I was, I had to get a screen capture of one shot that I could have an HD version of. So like, but I left the cursor in the middle. So every time I, I can only focus on that, but uh, I'm, uh, it, I'm very proud of it. I will say that. I, I think that 
I went, I, I set out to include not just the blockbusters and the big movies, but also the little movies and um, some international film. And, and I'm very happy that with the, with the spectrum of film that it represents over those 10 years. So it's definitely a piece that I'm extremely proud of. I'm, I'm as proud of that as anything that I produced while I was there. Did, did you get to the end of it? Like, and then realize you had, you had missed a movie. Did that happen or no? I mean, I kind of had to. I, I had to to come to grips with the fact early on that I could never, I could never even include every movie I wanted to put in, because it's just, it just wasn't possible. And so, yeah, there were a bunch of movies that I wanted to put in that I just didn't, um, because you know, I, I put. I, I also wanted to make sure that it was representative of the actual picture uh, of, of film. So there's a there's twilight in there because yeah, no, it would be disingenuous <laughs> to say that the 10 that 10 years that from a box office and a cultural perspective that twilight wasn't a big part uh, of a few years in the middle there so i even put in some movies that like i i'm not even a big fan of but it would be disingenuous to say like i'm not going to write history as far as what was important or what was popular and what wasn't so yeah there's a bunch of films that i probably would have loved to have put in there but at the same time i also wanted to include you know the 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 true picture of what was popular and what was successful although i could not bring myself to put in a transformers movie <laughs> you i you I couldn't kind bring of myself have... to do it you have like an aversion to those ones, I know. Um, I'm not a fan. Yeah. I'll tell you what, though. So, so one of the shows on this channel that I'm launching to go along with this one is this show called Song from the Scene. And so the idea with the show is that, you know, there's all these movies that have an original piece of music written for it. Um, and some of them are even like, you know, a very like Sing Street's a great example. Like that's a movie that like the, it's all just original music. But even like Transformers, the first one has a Goo Goo Dolls song called Before It's Too Late that was written for the soundtrack. And it mm -hmm. plays in like a key moment when like Sam and Michaela hold hands for the first time. And in 2007, when I saw it for the first time, I was like, I love this movie. And uh, I'm, I'm basically going to break down these scenes and then cover the songs. Um, you know, on acoustic guitar. And so it's, that's like my new show. I'm very excited about it. And it's funny that even in a movie as crappy as, and I think Transformers one gets a bad rap, but even it's as bad as not that, as bad as the others. No, um, you can still find, you know, redeeming qualities. And I think, mm -hmm. I think that's one of the great things about the video that you made. I do, I do love at the end of it, um, that you, you include the Logan shot, uh, because it turns the, the grave into an X, which obviously represents the, the 2010s is Logan close to your heart. I love Logan. I think that's a great movie. Um, and and including that at the end, I wish I could say that I realized from the beginning that that was what that was. I literally was just trying to think of a good shot to end on and something that was very kind of emotional. And I landed on that. And then I realized once I put it in, I'm like, oh, shit, that X is a 10, just like the decade. Yeah. So <laughs> it, it, was happy. it was dumb luck. Uh, but yeah, I, I'm a, I like Logan a lot. I think that... Um, I was a little suspicious going in because especially when you're bringing back characters and then you're going for a different vibe, it, it can come off a little try hard. Um, but I, I loved what they did with it. I think Hugh Jackman is a brilliant actor. There's, I think they're so lucky that they got, because there's no way you, you could know because he was cast on really short notice for the first X-Men movie. With Dugray Scott, right? He was supposed to do it. Yeah, he was supposed to do it. And then I think Mission Impossible ran over, so he couldn't do it. And you bring in Hugh Jackman on short notice. I, there's no way they could have known at the time how good he would turn out to be. And so uh, I think it's a beautifully written movie. It's a be beautifully shot movie. Um, Patrick Stewart is, is great in it. Um, I, I, top to bottom, really. I, I was really impressed with Logan. I like that movie a lot. 
Shay, I, on on rewatch recently for the show, the greatest movie ever made, we're doing over on Action Industries. I I think that's Jackman's best performance. I actually like really thought about it hard after the fact because the big four or five are probably like Prisoners, Les Mis, that The Prestige. Maybe there's one other one in there, um, but it has so much depth and nuance because of what that character has meant, and he has mm-hmm. to bring so much like he's so scared of the world in that character. I I think, and that's such a it's such an interesting part of it. I would probably give it personally. I think, even though I was very disappointed in the film version of it, I think I would give it to Les Mis. I just okay. think he's he's phenomenal in that film. But 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 his performance in Logan, I think, is top notch. I mean, it is it is one of his best for sure. Yeah, for sure. Um, so, all right, we we talk movies all the time. We don't need to, <laughs> but I know one thing we both do is we think about movies a lot. In this game, the movie trivia showdown that we both play and and compete in. Uh, I guess compete probably play is the wrong word. We had this match recently, you know, going head to head in Atlanta. It was it was a it was a big one. It was one for the ages, one that I'll always remember playing in. Are you at a point now in your career in the movie trivia schmodown where you you feel like there's nothing left to prove, or are you do you feel like there's still something left? Um, I don't necessarily think there's anything left to prove. There's definitely things I'd like to accomplish. Um, you know, the the, the idea of going into inner geekdom uh, and competing to get that, you know, to to win the the, the three belts. Um, IG singles and teams. Um, I'm not motivated necessarily by wanting to prove anything or feeling like I have to do that for people to consider me this or that. Uh, It's more just like, I like to set a goal for myself and I like to set a challenge for myself. And I think that that is a, that's a, that's a real challenge. And it's a challenge that a lot of people uh, have attempted and nobody's done it so far. It's very possible. Somebody could do it before I get there. That doesn't necessarily mean that I'm not going to want to do it at that point. It'd be nice to be first. I'm not going to lie. But I, I guess I would I would say that, yeah, I feel like I, I felt like when I came back, especially before I played Ethan for that first championship belt, I did feel like I um, had something to prove in the sense that I had to prove that I could still play at a level and that I wasn't sort of a relic of the old times. But I don't think I really have anything left to prove at this point. It's more about personal accomplishments and goals and what I would just like to accomplish. Yeah, I mean, this, it, winning is awesome, and uh, you, there's more of it to be done. So I guess yeah. on a base level, that's cool. Yeah. Um, talking about go, going back to the match we played, because it's the last live event that we got to do before all this, this shenanigans started. And <laughs> yeah, okay. it, it's weird to, at the time, it just didn't even... I remember people wiping down seats on the airplane on to and from Atlanta. Um, yeah, it was because, well, Mara had had some issues where we had to be careful about that. So we were already wiping down seats and she'd been wearing a mask for a while. So it was something that was kind of in our, our brains, but I don't remember because it was probably what, less than a month before everybody really started going into, into, into lockdown mode. But yeah, it's weird to think of that world where, you know, just get on a plane, go out to eat, go to a restaurant, go to a big a crowded venue and you know high-fiving and fist bumping and meet and greets and everything and it just seems like uh, such a, a relic of the past at this point but it wasn't that long ago it was so recently yeah so we all we all go out to atlanta and you know i know you had been i managed you in new york at the end of january and then mm-hmm. after that we kind of went into like preparation mode and it was interesting we haven't gotten to really you know uh, unpack this experience. I think some fans kind of know a little bit of it, but like there was like the interesting stuff when I was in New York and I called you and John and I were talking about the management stuff and it was like, Hey man, what do you think about? And it was so weird. Cause it's like, you know, we're on the same faction and we're trying to, but we also both want to win. So there was yeah. this weird line. I felt like we were telling. 
Yeah, I mean, I, I think honestly that would have been a pretty easy situation for us to navigate if it were just sort of like a regular sports league where you play the game and then behind the scenes you have all these discussions that happen. I think the unique thing about the Schmodown is that in addition to being a trivia contest, it's also a show. So in the midst of us trying to figure out that situation, at every turn there were people that would then go out publicly and make like make declarations <laughs> and stuff and be like, we're doing this. And like they wouldn't talk to me or they wouldn't talk to you or they wouldn't talk to John. You know, so you got Finstock saying one thing and then you're saying that John's saying one thing and then this, and it just it snowballed into this whole thing. And I think like that's the thing about like it was I think it was a fairly simple thing because I remember you when you called me. Like we talked about it and like I, it, it was pretty, I, if left to our own devices, I think it was pretty easy. Cause, yeah. cause I was like, you know what, man, I hear you. Um, let me talk to John. Let me see what he's thinking. Let me see where his head is. And like, let's revisit it later today. But then like later that day, I think like, <laughs> like, was, like, like public proclamations yeah. being made. And it's like, what happened? I didn't. So it was one of those things where it's like, uh, it, it 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 was it was the product of being part of a show where you have to generate stuff consistently and people want in on these things backstage and knowing what's going on. Well, I think that's what makes the show so good. And I think I think we got a great, obviously a great event, but I think the the, the theater leading up to the event was just as good. Um, yeah. You know, and it was interesting too because you said this on I was in Germany for work and I was listening to you on backstage and you were talking about like, you're like, now that I've said this, I know Ben knows that I know this and I'm really <laughs> got to think, you know, he's like, you're like very careful about anything that you say publicly. Cause yeah. and, and, and you were right. I mean, that's, that's, that's the way I play, right? I'm not, it's not like I'm spying on you or anything like that, but I'm definitely trying to put a strong strategy together. Yeah, no. And I'm used to that. Like I, I, I had a, a competitor come up to me who uh, it was actually a tactical mistake about a year and a half ago. It was like, yeah, I know, I know you've been watching a bunch of this lately is like, I, cause I'm helping, um, I'm helping Oyama like uh, track uh, what you're watching. So I noticed you've been watching a lot of, you know, uh, I think it was John Hughes lately. <laughs> and I was just like, Oh man. So now I have to like, I have to watch what I log and uh, it's nothing new. It's definitely nothing new. Um, I uh, I get it. You know, it's it's. I think there's a lot of like when we were talking about the opponents. That's another thing that happened that I would like. I don't think I ever said anything that publicly about it, but like the whole opponents' choice and spinners' choice thing, which was you know, I, I think John had said that I said it was it was disrespectful, which I don't yeah, remember saying it, that. Yeah, the only, <laughs> the only, I, I mean, I don't know. I. I I don't know. I don't, I don't remember saying disrespectful. I remember, but I remember saying like, I was surprised because you, you know, in my mind, we, we, but we both have two different things. Like in my mind, it's always like, well, I'm not going to put it on there because I don't want to feel like it's luck. If, if I win or lose, you know, I, I want it to be a clean game, but, but that's how I play. And in your mind, it's a tactical advantage and to not do it would be giving away potentially a tactical advantage, which by the way, it, it, definitely was for you so it's it's it all comes down to like so many different factors in gameplay and how you view the game and how someone else views the game and i think a lot of times people rush to saying what's the right way to play and what's the wrong way to play and i don't really think as far as strategy goes that there is a right or a wrong play there's just the way that you play the game yeah if you win it turns out to be right and if you lose it's probably people will point the finger um yeah. So I know that when, you know, when you played, obviously, long before this match we played, it was much more of a knowledge versus knowledge game. Do you like the aspect of the game now that we all are sort of forced to embrace the the, the much more sports league tactical? Uh, it definitely adds an interesting wrinkle to it. Um, you know, I, I, I think that 
you know, there's always that thing of if if you lose on a bad spin of the wheel, and 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 actually after after many many times, Frankie numbers right finally ran the numbers, and uh, I I have hit opponent's choice more than anyone else. So I, I I probably also have an aversion to that being on the wheel because I have been I have hit it a lot. Um, I think that it's just an adjustment that you have to make. And for example, like it, it may not necessarily inform how i play the game but it does inform how i prepare for the game and it definitely informed how i prepared to play you it, it does change how you prep and the scenarios you run in your head because it's like okay well if i'm thinking about what's going to go on the wheel if i'm playing bibiani for example then i when i think about what's going on, on the wheel i'm probably going to be more in the mode of like what does he know what does he feel like he's strong in? Um, you know, what does he have a deep knowledge base on? Whereas when I'm playing you, like I'm thinking about what you're going to put on the wheel, I'm going to think, okay, what does he think that I don't <laughs> yeah, right. know? Or what does he think that I think he'll put on the wheel? Or what does he think I'll put on the wheel? And it, it changes the cadence of how you get ready for a match. Definitely. Okay. And I won't ask you to give any information away here because I, we, we will hopefully be playing again this year. When yeah. you saw the wheel... Uh-huh. Did were you surprised with what you were expecting, or or was it you pretty much got what you thought? Um, I I fully expected you to put Tyler Perry on the wheel. You did, yeah, because I knew that number one, it's a new category, and so not a lot of people know a lot about it. Number two, I, I figured that you would probably put it on there, knowing that I probably was not didn't know about it and would study, which you did, uh, and that you would t- to know about it, and that would give you, as I mentioned, a tactical advantage. Um, but also, I, I was also kind of expecting Tyler Perry to be on the wheel anyway, regardless. He's from Atlanta, yeah. he's from Atlanta, and we were in Atlanta, so I was expecting Tyler Perry to be on the wheel. When I saw it on there, I was pretty sure that you'd put it on there, but at the same time, not completely sure that you'd put it on there. Um, and yeah, like I said, I, I guess initially I was a little surprised to see Spinner's an opponent's choice there, but I had also kind of anticipated that because, like I said, you're you're a tactical player, and that is a tactical. It could also be a disadvantage, by the way, tactical disadvantage, you know. But totally. you, 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 I know that you'll roll the dice on stuff like that. Um, everything else, like I still don't know exactly what you put on the wheel, other than that. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, but other than that, I, I, nothing really took me aback or shocked me. It looked like pretty like okay, yeah, that, that's about the wheel I was expecting. Yeah. So let's talk about this for a second, the the, the Perry moment, because I think a lot of people have, uh, when they've talked about this match, there's a couple big moments that I think everybody wants to, and you and I have never really gotten to break it down. Yeah. Um, so you go up in round one um, mm-hmm. and you're and you're up nine, six, which is a great way to start. And it's a very Dan Merle way to start because <laughs> nine points around one at this point for you is like second nature. And That's so like you do. Yeah. <laughs> and so I, I spin and I hit uh, I end up on Nora Ephron, which I understand yeah. now. Broke has been very clear that was your category. You never told yeah. me that. <laughs> yeah. um, and I think they're mostly pretty answerable questions. The, Julie Kavner being the only hard one. Um, yeah, yeah. But I mean, you know, she's the lead of a very obscure movie, which I think is is a, is a pretty good wheel question. Yeah, totally. uh, I think if it was like who's the lead of When Harry Met Sally, you're like, oh come on. But right. I think who's the lead of maybe other than uh, I think cookie, maybe her least known movie. I think that's fair game. That's totally fair game. Yeah. So uh, I end up, you know, picking up one point there because you end up getting seven and in the, uh, I think it's Anne Hathaway. You Anne get. Hathaway. Yeah. And the funny part about that is, and, and John told me that you guys in the, in the green room were doing your drills and getting ready. And we had both gone over the quick description of the categories. And when we both did the same thing on Colossal, which is 
studied up and made sure we knew the leads, made sure we knew the year and the director, but we didn't read the description of the country. I'd seen Colossal too. I was so disappointed in myself, but it was it was like two or three years before it. I just I just didn't remember. I just I, I could not remember for the life of me. I was hoping the answer would be Jason Sudeikis because I was like, <laughs> yeah, Jason right. yeah. No, it was not, unfortunately. Yeah, yeah. I was bummed. And I was bummed I missed the steal because the the irony of the whole match is that um, there's all these different moments that I could have picked up one point and and every every one of the times I could have picked up one point that I didn't is in the end why I lost right and so that's one of those moments where it's just like you could go a step further but so we get to the third round and this is like this is like the big dramatic moment in the match because mm-hmm. obviously you spin and on the betting round you hit opponent's choice and so I and I and you walked over to Roka am I correct and you said he's going to go Tyler Perry right I was I was almost convinced you were going to go Tyler Perry. Yeah. Yeah. So you make one of the great decisions in the history of the Schmodown in the history of league play in betting zero points, which is mm-hmm. a fascinating and brilliant move because in the end, the difference between that and one point is once again, what won you the match. Yeah. Was there any hesitation to John challenge you on it? Or you were like, I, this is the right thing to do. There was, there was definitely hesitation. I mean, I was looking at it in a way uh, I, I was looking past really the third round into the fourth round and the speed round. And I, I was looking at how I do in the speed round and I was looking at how you do in the speed round. And I said, okay, I think at that point we were tied or, or it was like, or we, I was up by one or up, by, up two, by one. So like, yeah. I was up by one. So I was like, okay, I'm going to go in with the assumption that Ben is going to sweep the speed round. Uh, I'm going to go into the assumption that I get nothing in the speed round. So it's like, okay, what's, what's the, what's the best case and worst case scenario of this right here. And I'm like, I have no confidence in the category that I'm going to know any question in this category. So I'm like, it's one or zero. Uh, and then I, I basically put myself in the, in the position of what, what positions me best for Ben to run the speed round and for me to, to be down going into the, 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 the final round. And John was like, what do you think? One or zero, one or zero. And I was kind of going back and forth. I was like, I don't, I don't know, man. Like, I don't know. <laughs> and he was like, well, well, he's like, well, how confident are you? I'm like, I have none. He's like, he's like, I don't know. It's like, you want to go zero? And I'm like, yeah. So yeah, it was literally just that, that discussion and me just sort of saying like, I have to assume that I'm going to be in a hole following the speed round because I know that that's a strength for you and a weakness for me. That's not giving away a strategic thing at all. It's obvious if you've ever watched me play a championship match, the speed round is just not my strong yeah. suit. So it was, it was, it was just the, the assumption of putting myself in the least bad position going into the next round. And I was just like, I don't want to lose points. If Ben bets three and gets three, which I think you did, um, then I'm down, but I'm not down big. I would, I could potentially go down big if I lose a lot of points. So it was just a bit of strategy that happened to in that moment in that game, be one of the moments that, that, that led to the end of it. I think one of the things that people have asked me a lot about in that moment is, um, the specific answer that I have to give there to get the three points, because a lot of younger players like to think, okay, you put a weakness on the category on the wheel for your opponent, thinking that you know you can control the game. But basically, I got the version of, of that category that's supposed to sink you for making that kind of mistake, which is a plot-based question. Yeah. And I had done the, like the deep, deep dive to make sure that I could answer those questions. But it was so close to being exactly the opposite. If I had gone one step, le- I would have just match was over at that point. Um, yeah, it's it's. It's crazy how you know you replay uh, a match in your head, and 
there have even been uh, some of the exhibition matches uh, looking at, at at how they go, where you look at the scores at the end and who's where, and you can I think you can go back through all those matches and say like, oh, if someone had just done this or just done that right. or just gone here or bet this or not bet that or or it, it completely changes the tone and the te- the tempo of the match. It's crazy how one little thing like that um, can change the momentum of, of a match, and that gave you the momentum easily. Yeah, I mean, I was on Schmobates last night. We were talking about the greatest comeback, and I was like, I think that the the Merle comeback in round five is the greatest comeback because I think after the speed round, I mean, which you know, I make the one mistake, but I pick up four, three points there. We're going into the last round. Had you resigned, like I, I'm just going to do what I can do, and I basically lost, or you still had the fighting spirit? No, I mean, John, I'll tell you, I was, you know, I didn't quit, obviously, but I was, I was sort of resigned to the fact. I mean, I think I said to him, I just said, like, hey, man, I just want to answer all my questions and make sure that, uh, make sure that this isn't a TKO. Like, I, I want to go, I want to go out fighting. It's like, I, I don't think it's my night. He's having a good night. Uh, you know, this is, I just want to, I want to put up a fight. I don't want to get KO'd. I want to, I want to force him to answer questions. And John was like, shut your mouth. Stop talking like that. You can can get your ass out there and answer those questions. And so I was like, all right, all right. But yeah, no, I had pretty much going into that final round. I had pretty much like I was 95% resigned to the fact that like, hey, listen, it ain't my night, uh, but I'm going to go out there and I'm going to try to answer all these questions because I want to at least force Ben to answer questions so that (laughs) I can say that it went all the way to the end. Yeah, it was, uh, and then so then it, you know it gets to the final round. Obviously, the the infamous Nick and Nora question, which is uh, I've heard so many arguments on the validity of that as a five point question, but, uh, but it is. It if, is. If I may make a counterpoint, yeah, like yeah. they say that that was an easy, easier five point question. I yeah. would argue that my three point question was more difficult, far more than difficult. your average three point question would be, which would be like, who was the lead, uh, not even the lead, but who was part of an ensemble cast of a Sidney Lumet film that like Ingrid Bergman, like if it, if it had been like who won the Oscar right, for, yeah. for murder, like that's very prominent thing, but like to name a ensemble member of the murder on the Orient express movie that came out in the seventies to me, I think is a little bit more difficult than your average three point question. So, uh, you know, the whole thing of arguing question difficulty, I get it. And if it's egregious, then I could see there being a debate, but there's always going to be some fluctuation in the difficulty of those questions. But I think there always will be. And I think every great player has, has won, has won or lost matches on the good, the good fortune or the terrible fortune of that, you know, and that's, that's happened to me too. So, yeah. Um, but yeah, so the match is, is obviously an incredible one and one I was very proud to uh, to be in with you. And, and I hope that we get to do it again. You guys are still the team champs as well. So now Riley and I have a path, it seems, to to have a shot to get back there. Yeah. I mean, they asked uh, – I, I was on Roka's show not too long ago, and they asked who would our preferred opponents be, assuming you know we get past corruption. And uh, I uh, – uh, I said, I said, it was you guys because in a in a vacuum, when we have to face a great team, because if you get to that championship level, you're a great team. I prefer the team that we also don't have that pressure on us. That if we lose, then it goes to a different faction and all that stuff. So, you know, I obviously would prefer number one. I think it'd be a great game. A lot of history there between everybody, and then number oh, yeah. two, it's it's great to be in another situation where win or lose, at least our faction comes out on top and and retains the belts. It would mean a lot to me to get Riley a belt. I think um, at this point in his career, it, it feels I feel like he's gotten such the short end of the stick. His legacy has been has been so cast aside by the history books in such an unfair way. And people don't give 
I mean, people just do not acknowledge when I play with Riley. Sure, I know how to control the game better than he does because that's my strength. But Riley knows more than I do. Period. Bar none. No question. Riley is on the level of you and Roca and Bibiani. He's an all-time level guy with that stuff, and it would mean a lot to get that guy a belt. I agree. I, I think that people that played in the sort of pre-show era, in the sense of like at the stage it is now, they get slighted in a way. And I agree. Like Mark is a champion, um, and uh, played. Uh, some of the greats in the game beat some of the greats of the game. So I, I, I agree that it would be, I would love to see, you know, I would not be sad to see our belts go over to you and Mark, because uh, I know that you are both champions. You, you would deserve it. And um, you know, uh, just on a personal level, you're our friends and it's great. You know, it's like sharing that. It's like when people ask about Mara and I, if we ever had to play each other in inner geekdom, if that should happen, like we're fine with it because whoever wins uh, we're giving the belt to somebody that we love. So it's, it's great. Yeah, it's awesome. Um, you know, now speaking of all of our friends, Roka and, and, and Riley, um, everybody's kind of got a channel now. Everybody's doing this thing. You know, obviously yeah. it's, it's kind of the world we live in now. But I think one of the most interesting parts about that is that when you started at Screen Junkies, when, you know, Christian and Mark started the Schmoes, when I started at AfterBuzz, there was no such thing as the revenue stream, as the model to survive that there is now. Mm-hmm. It didn't exist. Um, you could very comfortably, and I would even argue that as recently as a year ago, the revenue stream felt very different. It did not feel anywhere near as secure or optimistic. Um, was there when? When can you pinpoint the moment when you sort of looked at the and you were like, you know what? I think I can support myself by making content because mm-hmm. of the uh, fan base, the brand that I've now spent eight years building. I mean, I think I was certainly encouraged by the fact that so many of our friends that were at Collider who were sort of uh, really just coldly and suddenly and unfairly just kind of tossed out uh, were able to establish themselves. That to me said that like there is a path toward being able to do this kind of thing. Um, and not only that, but like there's room for more than one or two people. Like it can, it can, it can support a community of people because you're right. Uh, when, when, particularly when I started at Screen Junkies back in 2012, the YouTube model was at a point where uh, it had gone through that first four years at that time of like people in their living rooms making stuff. And then like, companies realizing that a lot of people were watching it and they were all getting gobbled up by these big corporations like you know smosh was bought by break media which became defy um you know all of these content creators were being given these huge well you would think they were being given huge paychecks a lot of them and 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 um uh Smosh, Anthony, I think from Smosh has been very upfront about this was like they were paid in like stock options for this company that never went public and and basically, you know, promised a bunch of money later, but a lot, but also were paid, you know, given salaries and ad rev and stuff like that. And I think what kind of made me realize that this was a, you've seen it now go the other way because all of these content creators, these companies realize that like you can do it on your own and make a, make an okay margin because your overhead is like you and where you live and your equipment and, and you, whatever it costs to make what you're making, but that's it. And then all of these companies that have overhead with HR and office space and renting and all of this stuff, they realize that the margins aren't big enough to support 50 people doing this necessarily. There's some that can do it and that's great. Or they're diversifying, which is awesome. That's a large part of what fandom has been doing as well. Um, 
but I like the fact that YouTube and and the creative space is now where it's all sort of going back to its roots of people independently um, making things and finding now the audience sort of understands and is trained to know that to pay them to do it isn't charity. It's like paying for a cable or or something else. It's it's somebody's producing something for you and it's 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 a transaction um but it's also a community it's i think it's the best parts of both things yeah i think it's a it's a fascinating point you make about the margins being so difficult to support and how sort of the the larger corporate side of this is you know farming out talent like that is really 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 hard to do um, and not really something that's very sustainable um but that we're now all in this in this place and i, and I think this is the other major factor that i'm noticing the term YouTuber is a term that at one time had this connotation of being like real kind of childish, like amateur. Yeah. Immature. And you see what's happening right now. And you see David Spade interviewing Adam Sandler from his home because his show got canceled. You see Ellen or, or, or Oprah and they're doing Skype and zoom shows with their friends and they're, and what's the platform that you're going to release content on? I mean, you can release stuff on your Instagram or TikTok or Twitter, but YouTube is the most easily digestible and well understood video platform in the world. That's not television <laughs> and yeah. everyone's using it. So why aren't we just like, you know, it's like, I guess, I guess the production value difference is the thing that people will point to. It's like, but that, but that gap is closing so much now because it's not just that, you know, the cameras now that people have are, uh, you can make a similar looking stuff to something that can be produced in a studio um, at an affordable level. You can get, you know, quality audio now. It doesn't have to look amateurish. People are able to do things on these, on their own budgets and in their own facilities that can match or, or come close to the production budgets of what these big, big companies can do. And so again, it comes down to what are you you making what is it that you're providing what 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 is your what is the content of your content if you will although i don't like that word content i think it just sort of homogenizes everything everything yeah um but I, I, that's what I, I i kind of see is like there was the stratification that happened where these big companies were, were were picking and choosing which youtubers were were to be uh, recognized and which ones were not to be recognized and as we're now going into this what i think is the second cycle it's going back to the audience saying like no we'll decide who we want to pay attention to and who we want to watch and we'll support them ourselves um and you know you don't have that power anymore and i think it really does go back to the roots of what youtube is supposed to be and i hope that they notice that and pay attention to uh to that and and, and help and assist and give more of that power back to uh, and support to those creators because you know there's so many people that, that i talk to um you know in the particularly the movie space that when when youtube started getting a little more corporate and when they started you know allying themselves things like copyright strikes and stuff they were just kind of allowing and still are in, in a lot of places allowing companies to run rampant and strike videos for no reason and not provide any explanation or no real recourse to remedy that and i hope that they recognize and they've taken some small steps but i hope they continue to recognize that like you know you're serving the creators and you're serving the audience and yes you obviously have to work with corporations and companies but like th that's your key audience and that's your key demographic yeah definitely and i think i think the thing that is so cool and so encouraging about all of it is that you know uh i think somebody 
I can't remember who it was, but somebody once said and told me, you don't need a million fans. You need a thousand loyal fans um, to, to, to make a living as a creator. Um, you need a thousand loyal fans who will, because those thousand loyal fans, you know, they'll buy your book. They'll, they'll basically keep you in business. Um, if you really are loyal to them and you create something they want. And I think that idea is kind of accurate because it really does mean that if you have a vision and you believe in it and you really believe in the content and I know you hate that word, but you're making that, uh, you know, you have a way to connect. So, I mean, I guess the question I have for you is like, can you elevator pitch me the content you're making? I mean, like, well, the vision for Dan Merle, like what's the thing that you want to be doing that you're the most excited about? I mean, it's the fact that, you know, you're right. The old way of thinking is, and honestly, the old way that, that it worked was, especially on YouTube, that in order to make a living, quote unquote, at it, you had to have huge, you had to have big traffic. You had to make a lot of ad rev. You had to bring in X amount of viewers per video because you had to get those pre-rolls because that was really your only reliable source of income was how much ad rev are you generating? So that means that you're generally making stuff that is aimed at the biggest things that people want to see, which is definitely worth talking about, you know, in the from So for movies, it's DC, it's Marvel, it's star Wars. Um, it's, it's stuff like that. Um, because that's how you survive. Cause you have to bring in that, um, that interest. People have to click. I think that what we're seeing now and what I hope to build is obviously I love all that stuff and I'm going to talk about all that stuff, but I've been very forward about the fact that like, this is largely going to be a lot of the things that I'm interested in, which are the big movies, but it's also classic movies. It's also independent film. There is a hunger for people out there and it may be a smaller audience, but like you said, now the way that it works is if you can have a devoted and loyal smaller audience, that can help make up the difference, whether that's through Patreon, whether that's through Streamlabs and Super Chat and doing Q&As, or whether that's just through a loyal audience that watches all your stuff. I think that what I want to do is build a channel that's, yes, it's what I'm interested in, but it's building a community with my audience and talking to them and being open. And what do they want to know about? What do they want to know more about? I, I did a poll on my Patreon uh, page today. And the last time I checked, you know, I, I kind of said like, what are you guys looking forward to the most? And, you know, movie reviews was up there, but like the top vote getters were like, we want recommendations. We want to hear about uh, Criterion Collection movies. That would be great. We want to hear about like things that we haven't seen, or or for you to find stuff. Like uh, the, I, I was talking uh, yesterday in the Q and A about how the fact that I don't know anything about Miyazaki movies. I've never seen one, and there's a now since I said that there's an immense amount of interest in and in the audience saying like, oh my god, they're so good. Like we want to take that journey with you and talk about you seeing those movies. So that's really my vision for the channel is, is to find this sort of hub where we can talk about all kinds of movies where I can bring movies to the audience where they can bring movies to me. And you really discover movies together because, you know, there are more than 15 movies a year that come out that matter. Uh, there's a bunch uh, and there's a bunch that have come out that nobody talks about. And, you know, let's do that. Let's talk about the big stuff. Let's talk about the little stuff too. And let's just sort of embrace this wide world of stuff because there's so much amazing cinema and film out there to be found and talked about. Do you have a favorite actor or actress? Who currently, I, I don't know if there's one in particular that, that I'm a huge you know fan of as in like, oh, well, that's, you know, I, I, people know that I love Tony Collette. I think that because of, you know, my uh, an Oscar for Tony campaign. But I also think that she just brings a um, 
this kind of lived in quality to every character that she plays. Even when I see, when you see her pops up, pop up in knives out, it's a, it's a a tiny, it's it's a smaller role, but she's so good in it. And you get that character. It's because of, of her and what she brings to the role. Um, But you know, if we're talking classic film, I'm a big, I'm a big fan of Jack lemon. I I love his his roles, um, particularly and Billy Wilder is one of my favorite directors. So seeing him work in the movie scenes with Billy Wilder, I love, I think that, uh, um, uh, in the seventies, you have you know Pacino and, and Hoffman, Dustin Hoffman, Faye Dunaway. I think had yeah. such a bright, uh, you know, a lot of the actors uh, actors have a, a just a segment in their career where they're just like a supernova, and I think that was Faye Dunaway for such a long time with Chinatown and Network and so many other films. Uh, I think she's fantastic. Um, oh man, it's it's almost like a, a, paral- a paralysis by analysis because there's so many to think about and choose from. Uh, but I, I think in general, it's it's it really is. I'm drawn to to authenticity. Uh, I'm drawn to truth. Um, I'm drawn to somebody who's who's uh, like I think that Gene Wilder, in addition to being a great actor, I, a great comedic actor, I think is a great actor because he knew how to modulate a comedic performance, and he goes so far over the top, particularly in like the producers and Blazing Saddles, like he knows when to go over the top and he knows when to pull it back. He can play big and he can play small and that's not an easy thing to do. So I, I, I appreciate somebody who has that, 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 that control over their range and can bring a very genuine uh, quality to their performance. Uh, that, that really appeals to me uh, as a fan. Yeah. Levels, levels are really, really important to be able to, 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 you know, moderate as a performer. Right. I'm with you. I, I was, I was uh, wondering, you know, just because I think a lot of us have our favorite performer, if there's still that sort of odd one movie or two that you still always sort of meant to watch from a favorite performer, but you just never have for one reason or another. Um, let's see. I'm trying to think if there's anything I, I, I recently filled in Lawrence of Arabia. I went, that was a, that was a big blind spot for me that uh, I, uh, uh, I filled in. I, I've actually wanted to go back. I, I'm not, I've seen Brando's major works and you yeah. know, Godfather and apocalypse now and, and sort of the highlights of his career, but uh, streetcar named desire, but I, I've always wanted to go and see some of his other work. Uh, some of the, even the remake of a mutiny on the bounty, which I yeah. haven't seen. The one from like 65, I think. Uh, yeah. I think it's from some, some, some in that era. Yeah. Um, I, I, I feel like he's such an icon and I've seen the, the roles of his that, that, that gained him that, that iconography and that status. But I, I want to go in and see some of those smaller performances that he did because I've never actually seen a lot of those movies and they were big movies for the time. I think that's also something that gets lost is there could be a movie that's a massive hit in the era when it comes out, but over time it's sort of lost because you, you know, the, 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 the canon kind of shrinks the further you go, like the decades just become congealed to X amount of movies and you lose some big, big movies in that process. That's a weird thing that I've noticed has happened. And I noticed this when I go back to watch, movies from, from the older decades. And even if just, even honestly, just getting back to the the nineties and the eighties, there's still like, you'll, you'll look up a movie and it'll be like, Oh, like to me with how much I've heard of this movie, this feels like it's the equivalent of a red box film, like a movie that no one knew about. Mm-hmm. But then you look at it and you're like, okay, malice with Nicole Kidman and Alec Baldwin. You're like, this was right in the heart of Nicole Kidman breaking out. This was the heart of Alec Baldwin as like a sex symbol. It's written by Aaron Sorkin. You know, you can't even rent that movie on Amazon. You have to buy it. It's not available yeah. to be rented. Like, it's bizarre. It's, 
it's it's crazy. The the, the there's some movies like uh, the one I always bring up is True Lies. James Cameron, Arnold Schwarzenegger at his peak. Jamie Lee Curtis like comeback role, uh, unavailable uh, in in an HD format. Is that can't really find, true right now? Can't find it. Can't find it in HD. Is that a Cameron thing? Because the Abyss was also unavailable for a while. For a while it was. I don't know if it's a Cameron thing. I don't know if it's a Fox thing. I don't know what it is. But 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 you know, True Lies when it came out, like that was like the hit of the summer. Like that was a big big movie. Big movie. And yeah. for it not to have the deluxe edition or just not to be readily available in HD, it, it just you know that that would be unheard of for that type of movie to not be available in that kind of format today. But that's just over time. Some things just fall through the cracks. I'm sure somebody will, one day will be like, oh shit, we haven't done True Lies. I guess we should release that, huh? And, uh, but yeah, it, it's crazy how, what, what falls through the cracks over time. Yeah. Now, I mean, you've obviously been analyzing the different decades, all different movies for through all different times. And you started in 2012 with screen junkies. You're leaving now in 2020. There were a couple different eras in, in your time there. I know you, you mentioned when you were on the action guys, when you started, you were doing, uh, off camera stuff. You started to do more of the on camera stuff. Movie fights yeah. took off. You guys had plus there was all, you know, the big stuff that happened there when you guys kind of moved on to that next era of the company. Mm -hmm. Is there a, a period of time from working there that you look at as like that's that like brings warmth to your heart? Like it's the golden era for you? I mean, there are pockets of all those times. Uh, it, I, I think that sort of the if you want to talk about like the first peak was understanding because, you know, when we started, we were the Honest Trailer guys or the Honest Trailers channel. People knew Honest Trailers. They didn't know Screen Junkies. They started the Screen Junkies show to sort of get the get the brand name of Screen Junkies out there. And even then, people knew how. They thought he did the voice for the Honest Trailers. You know, they thought it was one person. I think it was the understanding when we started doing movie fights that... And I think it was a turn in the internet too, because I think the YouTube audience itself was starting to 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 lock in more closely on particular personalities and not just shows. And it was the understanding that like people actually care about discourse on movies and not just us throwing something out at them, but they want to be part of the discussion and they want to talk about it. So I would say that era, like right around 2015, uh, 2014 to 2015. And understanding that there's an audience that wants to really engage in a discussion, that to me really um, sort of made me kind of sit up in my chair a little bit and go like, oh, wow, like it's not just like we're not just going to be only doing honest trailers forever. We can actually do film analysis. And that's when I started getting more into like, OK, well, could I do criticism? Can I review movies? Like, can, is that something that we can do as a brand? Will people enjoy that? And then, you know, Screen Junkies Plus was in many ways, a frustrating experience because I don't think that it was supported by the company that we worked with the way that it should have been. And that really handicapped us from the very, very start. But it was kind of the realization of the fact that people, there was a, a very solid group of people, a lot of whom I'm reconnecting now through with through Patreon now who just love talking about movies and to find that kind of passion and enthusiasm. That's where I got to do my first shows talking about Billy Wilder and Sidney Lumet. And I didn't have to worry about views. I didn't have to worry about click through rate or how many people were commenting. Like it was just making a show that people liked. That's all that mattered. Um, that was very energizing to me also because it showed that there was a path forward for that kind of thing. Yeah. Uh, you mentioned, you mentioned Lumet. Uh, my favorite actor of all time is Paul Newman. And I think, yeah. uh, I think that the verdict is, was one of those like perfect movies. It's a, it's a movie I always come back to. Um, it's not only is it so good, but he's just perfect in that movie. 
Sidney Lumet is a director that it's like you go down his filmography and I really think you're going to be hard pressed to find a disappointment in there because even a movie like The Verdict, which is not necessarily in the top five films that people talk about when they talk about Sidney Lumet, is great. It's so good. Um, and that's what I mean when I talk about when you only hit the highlights and me wanting to go back and talk about Brando like or, or look at his filmography. Like It's great to hit those highlights, but it's also weird what the process of canonization is and what people de deem to be the essential works from a director and what the truth is. I mentioned on Roka's show uh, uh, very recently, we were talking about top five Hitchcock and one of mine is a movie called shadow of a doubt, which not yeah. a lot of people put in the top five, but which I think is brilliant and everything that he does well as a director, the mystery, the sort of playfulness around murder and dark humor is all there. But, you know, just because culturally it's been sort of decided that the essentials are Rear Window and Vertigo and North by Northwest and Psycho and The Birds, all great movies. But if you go even deeper down, you're going to find some great stuff there. It's, it's so weird with Hitchcock that, like, he had this string of hits between, like, 54 and 60. And that's def that's largely defined his career, even though Rebecca wins Best Picture in 1940. And he's got all these other movies in the, you know, he's got all these other movies in the 40s that are really great. You go yeah. all the way back to, the, I think, like the late 20s as he's making movies. But it really is funny that that little stretch of his career of about seven years is like the main thing that anyone ever references. Yeah. Um, so, okay. So I, I remember when you guys launched Plus, I had just met Roxy Stryer, actually, and she was doing a show called TV Fights, which was so cool. She yeah. was really excited. And, you know, obviously things developed. The the plus thing didn't work as well as I guess you guys wanted it to. And there was a there was a big move with Fandom bought the company. I'm trying to remember mm -hmm. what year that was when Phantom when uh, Fandom, Fandom bought, bought us. I believe that would have been 2018. So yeah. the sort of after like the big sort of falling out stuff when Phantom had purchased the company, mm -hmm. do you remember feeling like the company had like a different, I guess, uh, vision, a vibe, a tone, something that you you connected to? Um. I think that, uh, you know, well, first of all, and, and I mentioned this when I when I launched the channel, um, fandom in a lot of ways kept our team together because Defy uh, about, I guess, a year or, or, or a little less than or maybe a little more. It all it all runs together in my, in my head. I think a little more than a year after we got bought, um, Defy just literally shut down overnight. And there was no warning, really. Like they had, they had, they had announced that there was a plan to sort of like phase out over a few months. But they're like, "Don't worry, like it's gonna, it's gonna happen over the next, you know, this, these are changes we're making." And then it was literally like a few days later, it was like, "And we're go, everyone's gone, go home, we're done." And all of these different channels, Smosh, Smosh Games, Clever, um, uh, uh, Warp Zone, were just out left out in the cold, no access to any of their resources, locked out of their channels for a while and with no roadmap to what their future was going to be. And we were literally next door still in that building watching it all happen. And, and for, for us, it was like, you know, that was, that would have been us. We, and who knows, you know, we're, we're a pretty big team as far as the internet goes and the number of people and everyone is still there. I think largely because we got bought by fandom, but it, you know, it was a difficult process because, um, you know, we got bought and then there was a kind of a shakeup and then not, not in a bad way, but just how companies adjust. Like there's, a, there were some yeah. adjustments in the company. So it took a while to really get the feet under, uh, under us as far as what they wanted from us. You know, we were just kind of doing what we, what we had always done and what we did. 
and, but, but also at the same time kind of waiting for guidance about what was going on. And that's a long process when you're running a company like that to get a, a, a vision for the future is a very long process. And so once that vision was kind of established was when I kind of started stepping back and saying like, okay, where's my place in this? Where's my place in the future? You know, what's my role going to be? And that's sort of when the contemplation began of like, you know, you know, do you think, is this a possibility? It doesn't look like I can really go down that road and it doesn't really look like I can go down that road. And you know, what would my path here look like? And that's when it sort of started to become a, an actual question in my mind, as far as like, what what am I going to do that I think best serves me and also what I want to do with my life and what I'm ex excited about and what makes me passionate and that I want to share with people. Yeah. What's next, so to speak. Um, you mentioned just a second ago, and I know I've just got you for a couple more minutes here before we get yeah, out of here, but you, you mentioned just a minute ago that um, you got really excited about being a critic. And that mm -hmm. was something that when you started to realize you might get to do it was really exciting. And I had, I had a similar aspiration. I didn't grow up wanting to be a movie critic, but I do remember when I, if funnily enough, I actually launched a show called Nerds and Suits Movies with Anchor.fm back in 2018. Um, that was the first time I put any content out under that name. I had basically like a relationship to the studios from various jobs I'd worked, and I just yeah. reached out to all of them and said, hey, I'm going to be reviewing for this company. Um, can I start going to these screenings? Because I had gone to a handful of press screenings, mm -hmm. and they just started inviting me, which was like <laughs> such a, a revelation. And I, I do remember the first... Uh, press screening I ever went to was long before that. It was back in 2014 for a Paul Haggis movie called Third Person, I think. Okay. I think it was called Third Person. It had like Maria Bello, Mila Kunis, Liam Neeson. Uh, not, a, not a great movie, but uh, <laughs> but I remember getting to screen it early and being like really excited to be in. And then now I've done a lot of it. Do you recall the first press screening you ever attended? Hmm. Let me think. It would have been sometime around 2014. 2014 2015 like the first one that i i was actually like invited to um uh, i mean i i remember that I, I got to go to one for the force awakens which was a a big deal for me like yeah. to be able to get in and see it early because we were reviewing it it was before i had become a, uh, an individual critic but we uh, on the channel uh were gonna review it and and i got to go and that was a like for me that was like oh wow I got a force awakens invite. Like, yeah. I'm, I feel like I'm part of the big time. Um, <laughs> so that was the, that was one of the first ones that I remember being like, Oh wow, that's cool. Like, like uh, you can, you can do this. This is, this is fun. Um, but it, it, in a lot of ways, it's almost a little tougher sometimes to, to, to establish those relationships when you're part of a bigger company, because there's a lot of different people inside the company that, that, that can review movies or that serve different roles. Like there's people that do junkets and there's people that don't do junkets and, and so um, I, I actually struggled a little bit uh, with some studios because, you know, they don't necessarily know who to reach out to uh, because there may be two or three different people or there's legacy people that they already know. And, and so, uh, and so being at a larger company in some ways was sort of a disadvantage, but also but that's not a complaint because I'm very lucky to have gotten access to the movies that I was able to go to. And that was a lot of them. Um, it is a different it's a different vibe though than a normal than not when I want to say normal, but then a, than a, than a public screening because you know, it is critics and they're a little less expressive and um, perhaps a little more hard bitten uh, about certain things. Um, 
but but it doesn't matter with the great movie. You know, the, the screenings I went to for for really good movies, the response is the same as when I saw them with a with a paying audience. So I think the critics get a little bit of a bad rap sometimes because people think that they walk into a movie cynical. Um, that may be the case for some critics, but I don't think it's the case for all critics. Yeah, definitely, and I think those experiences uh, sometimes they're hilarious. I mean, were you at the were you at the Fox one when the fire alarm kept going off at the end of Dark Phoenix? Yes, <laughs> yes, I was. Uh, I think they made. I don't think it affected the. I don't think it affected the critical reaction to that movie. But yes, when we went to Dark Phoenix, there were. I guess there was two theaters. Now, were you yeah. in the one at but at the climax of the film, the, yeah, the like big train action? Minutes, yeah. These this fire alarm goes off in the in the theater. And now were you in the one where they didn't stop the movie or were you in the one where they did stop the movie? So the one I was in, they, they it's first the lights start going off and, and anytime you're at a movie theater and it seems like the door is opening, people freak out because of yeah. you know, violence. And so I think everybody jumped and it kept going, the light kept going off. And then finally the thing, they stopped the movie and they got us all <laughs> up and left and then put us, I can't remember if it was in another theater, the same one, but then it went off again. Uh-huh. And uh, it just I barely remember the end of that movie. I mean, it was not a very good movie, but uh, the whole experience at the end, it was just hilarious that it was the climax of the movie. I don't even I don't recall, but I know there was two theaters. I was in the other theater. And what happened was the the fire alarm went off and it was such a loud sort of cacophonous action sequence that for like three or four minutes, I remember thinking like, this is an interesting creative choice because it was sort of this droning sound that was going on throughout the whole thing. And then it became very clear that it was a fire alarm. But no one came in and no one said anything. And the movie kept playing. And then the lights came up and then the lights went down. And the oh, lights came weird. up and then the lights went back down again. And still nobody came out and said anything. And they never stopped the movie. They never explained what was going on. They never like said, we're going to replay it. They literally just, just this whole madness was going on for the last 20 minutes of the movie. And that was it. And I think like the next day they were like, Hey, if you want to see it again, you can see it tonight. But the, the embargo had already dropped. But yeah. I, if I were the Fox PR rep, I would have number one, been furious at the theater for not doing better at saying what was happening. But then also like, you got to stop the movie and, and, and uh, I, there's gotta be a way to like roll it back. And to a certain totally. point, because I don't think they did themselves any favors by kind of that happening because it completely derailed whatever momentum the movie had going for it to that point, which other than Michael Fassbender was not very much, not a lot. No. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I have a couple last questions for you here, Dan, before I get sure. to them, guys, I do want to remind everybody here who's watching, uh, please hit that subscribe button, the notification bell. I'm really trying to do this nerds and suits thing. And, and I appreciate you guys watching and listening and, and, uh, you know, go ahead and hit the thing. It would mean the world to me if you did. Oh, I think there's even a banner I can put here. That's like, there is a ticker on the bottom. That's cool. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and uh, check out the other videos on the channel. I've got an interview with Christian Harloff was the first one that went up. And then of course the show song from a scene that launches next week, which I'm really excited about. I might, I might do that song from the wedding singer. I want to grow old with you. I'm not totally sure, but it's oh, a good one. It's a good one. Yeah. It's real sweet. But uh, anyway, guys, thank you so much for watching. And uh, we got a couple last minutes with Dan and then and I'm gonna let you get out of here. So over the years, I know, man, you had a million cool guests come through screen junkies. He's got to do stuff at Comic-Con. Do you have a memory of getting to do an interview that stuck with you? Like one that was really like the highlight you always would think about. Yeah. I mean, you know, we did stuff with the rock, which is great. He was always awesome to work with. Uh, I didn't do a lot of interviews, but the one that I, uh, that I will always remember is I did the junket. It's the, uh, it's the only junket I've ever done. And it was because we were doing a bit for, for Comic-Con with the, with a Star Trek uh, beyond. And they sent me because I was literally the only person that knew Star Trek. And it was about like very Star Trek-y things. And 
uh, they everyone was paired up, and I was I was so nervous because number one, I love Star Trek. Number two, I don't do junkets. I don't talk to celebrities on a regular basis, and these were like these were like celebrities that I was big a big fan of, and Simon Pegg and Carl Urban were paired together. And so it was, we were doing like a movie fights thing where, you know, I present to them like, what's the best Star Trek movie or what's the best this. And, you know, it was, it was a pre-recorded bit that we then played at Comic-Con. And so when you walk into an interview with Simon Pegg and Carl Urban, naturally you think that of the two of them, when you ask them a Star Trek question, that the one who's going to like go deep down into it is the guy who co-wrote the movie, that movie, Simon Pegg, like, right. plus he's like a big kind of nerdy, you know, kind of known for being into all this stuff. And so I asked him about, you know, the favorite movie and Simon Pegg, like gives a great answer about wrath of Khan and why he thinks it's a great movie. And then Carl Urban, like he gives like the deepest cut thing. He's like, he's like, it's like, yeah, you know, and he's from Australia. So he's got that Aussie accent. It's just like, you know, I like, uh, I like Star Trek, the motion picture, because, you know, the thing about Dr. McCoy is, uh, you know, he gets back into the service and then you've got Spock on Vulcan and he's going through Kolinar and he's going through this deep Vulcan train. And he like goes into this like long, like super <laughs> detailed breakdown of like Star Trek lore and mythology. And I was just like sitting there like, I mean, it really threw me for a loop because like, I, I got to admit, I did not expect that level of Trek knowledge from Carl Urban. So I, I, I'll always think about that because it really did. I was already kind of like on my heels because I love Shaun of the Dead. I love Dread. I love both of those guys. And then Carl Urban completely shocked me with all of this like deep Star Trek knowledge. So he's either a huge fan or like that guy did his research <laughs> before he did the movie. It's also ballsy to pick the motion picture. I mean, I, I recently watched every single Star Trek movie so I could have a shot to not get skunked by you in a match. And I'd never seen like any of them. And that's a bad movie. Easily one of the it. worst Star Trek movies. That is a, I would agree. That's one of the, this is the ballsiest picks to pick that as the best one. Is that just the worst Star Trek movie? I mean, I can't, the only ones that I would say that possibly rival it, like five is really bad. And I think like Insurrection is really bad. I don't know if it's the worst, but it is the least rewatchable. And it was the one that if you were to say like, what Star Trek movie would you want to not watch right now? It's the motion picture because it's just so the last time Mara and I watched it, we fast forwarded to like all the slow panning shots of ships in space. And I swear to God, it cut 25 minutes out of the movie. Like, like I'm not exaggerating, like literally 25 minutes out of the movie. But of the bad Star Trek movies, I didn't find a lot to to get back from that one. But I did I did find that because uh, you know Shatner directs five, mm -hmm. and <laughs> I think it's really funny that the movie opens up with like a very out of shape Shatner, like scaling <laughs> like like rock climbing. El Capitan, <laughs> like like Alex Honnold, like free uh, free uh, soloing El Capitan. Yeah, yeah, that's. Uh... <laughs> Uh, it's yeah. so ridiculous. I was like, that's of course, of course, Shatner has himself like free soloing El Capitan. And he's yeah. like, she's like so clearly just like too heavy to be on that rock face at that point. Oh yeah. This great mighty strength of Captain <laughs> Kirk. Like it's obviously like on a, on a blue screen, like a backdrop thing. It's like, Oh, that, that figures that Shatner. Although I do actually like that opening as it's a great example of the Spock bones, uh, uh, Kirk trio. Um, that's one of the things I like about that movie is that is a great interaction between the three of them and speaks to how those characters relate to each other. The row, row, row your boat stuff. Yeah. Just all the stuff around the campfire. And even the fact that it's ridiculous that this, that this, uh, obviously uh, special effects riddled uh, Shatner is climbing, uh, uh, El Capitan, but the fact that, you know, Spock's got the rocket boots and he's distracting him and he's pointing out the illogical nature of climbing something like this. And then bones worried on the ground and, it's a great interaction. There's not a lot to love about that movie, but that's one of them. 
Kalani <laughs> says, uh, "What's he beans?" And so it's an explosive combination. What? What is it? Yes. Yeah, so, yeah, so, uh, I, I, yeah, I remember you calling it marshmallows, uh, also. Which, uh, yeah, there's a lot of fun stuff. That's so funny. All right, last question. We'll keep it on Star Trek, just because I, I want to rewatching them, and I know you're a gigantic fan. Um, yeah. The one that really stood out to me, the surprising hit that I love that I think a lot of people hate, is Generations. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I wonder how you feel about Generations as a diehard Star Trek fan. A lot of Star Trek fans don't like Generations. I think it might have to do with the fact of they don't really love how Captain Kirk goes out, which I get. You know, it is a bit anticlimactic, and they they even reshot that to be even more dramatic. And uh, I agree that it could have been handled a little better. But I actually don't mind Generations. I think that it's a very striking difference in how the it looks. Like they went way too far in the cinematic look of the ship because everything's in the dark all of a sudden. Like they went very dark. Uh, with the aesthetic. And I think that's off putting to some people too, but I love the Patrick Stewart um, storyline in that about just sort of understanding his mortality and that he's never had this family and now he doesn't have a chance. And I love how Malcolm McDowell uh, manipulates that situation. Yeah. The whole, they say time is the fire in which we burn. Like he's (laughs) such a great villain. And I like, I like the interaction between Scotty and Chekhov and Kirk at the beginning. I like the meeting of the captains. You know, there's some stuff that's like, eh, but I like data with the emotion chip and learning. I hate this. It is revolting. Like, I I think that there's a lot to love in that movie. So I like Star Trek Generations. A lot of Trek fans don't. I do. It's also one of the weird, uh, like, post Ferris Bueller's Day Off, Alan Ruck appearances. There's, like, only a few, like, you know, Speed. Speed, yeah. Yeah, very notable. And then obviously he's in that one. I do love, though, when he's like, I'll go. And then Kirk has that moment where he's like, no, the captain's place is here on the bridge. And you're like, yeah. God, you're such a hero, man. No. And that moment of where he's, he's he sits in the chair. Yeah. Like, I love that he sits down in the chair and then he has that moment of reflection. And he's just like, no, your place is on the bridge. And that's literally just like those captain's instincts of like, oh, man, do I want to take command of the ship? But I also know what it's like to not sit in this chair and the gravity and the weight that sitting in that chair has. Uh, yeah, they, 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 there's more levels to that movie than some people give it, I think. Because I think that that's the stuff actually in the end, why I connected to that movie more was like, I think there's the, some of the elder statesman stuff that Kirk has gets to do in that movie that I think is cool, especially for me, had never having watched any of those movies and mm-hmm. watching them all in such quick sequence, getting seeing him get older and older like that. Um, there is some sort of some gravity to him, you know, making that respectful move. But anyway, yeah. Star Trek, Jan, thank you so much for uh, coming on the show. I really appreciate you talking to me today. This was this was a blast for me, and uh, I hope you guys watching had a good time as well. Obviously, I think probably if you're watching this, you're already subscribed to Dan Merle, but if they're not, Dan, where can the folks find you and what you're doing? YouTube.com slash Dan Merle Movies is my YouTube channel. There's been It's been an, an amazing first week so far, and uh, we're just looking to build from here. You can also find me on Patreon patreon.com slash Dan Merle. You can look into what I'm doing over there. You get uh, early access to everything that I'm doing over on the YouTube uh, uh, side, except for like reviews and stuff that have to hit a certain date that I can't release early. Uh, but also uh, you, uh, I'm doing a monthly movie club that you can get if you join Patreon. Uh, I'm doing a monthly film commentary uh, at the at one of the tiers that you can get if you join Patreon. Uh, the community that we're building already over there has been so amazing to watch grow uh, just in these last few days. We've got a Discord community that I'm learning how to use Discord and how to f- figure all this stuff out. It's been such a, an amazing series of new adventures. And uh, it, it was really um, 
it's been really difficult to 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 in some ways leave behind the community at Screen Junkies, but there's so many of those folks that have that have decided to make the jump over and support both of us, which is incredible. And uh, to reconnect with some people, to meet some new people, it's been uh, it's been a lot of fun so far. A lot of work, but a lot of fun too. So uh, that's where you can find me, and uh, I'm having a blast. I'm loving it. Cool, man. Well, guys, be sure to hit that subscribe button, the notification bell below. Leave your thoughts and comments below. You can find me everywhere at Ben Bateman Media and, of course, Nerds and Suits, everywhere on all the socials at Nerds and Suits. Check out the action, guys, every Sunday night. Dan was a recent guest. We've got Matt Iceman from American Ninja Warriors, our guest this nice. Sunday night. We're really excited about that. And uh, otherwise, guys, keep it classy. Thanks for hanging out. I will see you on the next one.